Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Hi, I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. Uh, welcome to the Daily Bolster. Uh, today we are going uh, in deep with Bob Blumberg, uh, who is also, not totally coincidentally, my dad. Uh, and someone who I've often said is my entrepreneurial hero. Uh, and uh, uh, Bob is a retired uh, tech founder and entrepreneur who is currently the executive chairman or CEO advisor uh, to multiple startups, uh, which uh, actually means he's not really retired. Uh, but uh, dad, welcome to the Daily Wolster. Thank you, Matt. Uh, delighted to be here and uh, join in a conversation with you. Great. Well, I have been looking forward to this because uh, although I know a lot about uh, the arc of your career and uh, the lessons you've learned over the years, I think um, some of them are, are, first of all, some great stories, and some of them are also going to be quite interesting uh, to early stage uh, first-time founders or even later stage founders uh, that listen to the show. So um, so thanks for being here. Why don't we start with uh, kind of the beginning of your career um, you uh, finished uh, MIT with an undergraduate and a master's in chemical engineering. Uh, and then uh, before you really dove into your business career, you worked in the Pentagon. Um, what did you do there? Well, before we get there, you skipped one step. I uh, went to Harvard Business School and got an MBA, which um, my, my theory at that point in my life was I really enjoyed technology but I wanted to have a broader scope of what I did, uh, which you would get in business more than in a technical field. So I really wanted to work on the edge of where technology met business. And um, uh, that's, that's sort of what shaped my career. Right, I forgot um, that you did that straight out of, uh, out of the master's and undergraduate, which, uh, which is unusual today, but was normal back then. Yes. Uh, also, uh, we were in the midst, the, our country was in the midst of the Vietnam War. And I wanted to finish my what I wanted for my education uh, first. Uh, then the Vietnam War is still going on. I volunteered uh, for direct commission in the army, underwent training, and then uh, got a job, interestingly, at the Pentagon, working for the Secretary of Defense on his planning and budgeting and systems analysis staff. I spent a couple of years working on the five-year United States defense plan and budget, um, and uh, uh, but did it at lieutenant's pay. Uh, <laughs> as I was transitioning out. Well, hold on. So let me let's ask a question about that. So sure. you're working for uh, Robert McNamara. Correct. Uh, who had been uh, recruited uh, to lead uh, the DOD out of private industry, which was very unusual. Uh, there've been a couple right. secretaries of defense over the years uh, like that, but not very many. And I think he was the first. Um, what was the experience like working in the Pentagon, but working on a team that probably felt very corporate? Did the rest of the Pentagon respond to that or reject that? Or uh, There was an uneasy truce. Um, we worked with the military officers uh, who were very suspicious of us, uh, but uh, knowing we were all in the service of the United States government were reasonably cooperative. Um, the interesting thing really was I served mostly under McNamara, but uh, he had left 
before I did, and I served also under Melvin Laird and Clark Clifford. And it was very interesting to see how quickly things changed when the guy at the top of an enormous organization was changed. I won't go into the details, just the, the, the ripples were felt very quickly all through the organization. All right, so you transitioned out of the Pentagon. Yes, as, as I was uh, thinking of leaving um, and looking for what my business career would be, uh, it came to my attention through another one of my colleagues at the Pentagon that there was a new field emerging, which was called venture capital. Mm -hmm. I've heard, of, was, I've heard of that. It too. was very little known back in the uh, 19th, early 1970s. In fact, there were five venture capital companies in the whole country. And uh, I interviewed and was fortunate to land a position with uh, one of the first ones founded, J.H. Whitney and Company in New York. Uh, and I joined there as an associate. I worked there for a couple of years. One of the partners there had left and formed his own venture firm located in San Diego. And uh, for a variety of reasons, I decided it was time for me to move. I called him, joined his new firm, opened a New York office for them, ran it as a one-man office. And after a couple of years, we could see that there were problems with a one-man office. And he did not want to expand it, but uh, he wanted me to stay in the firm. So we picked up stakes and moved to San Diego where I've been ever since. All right, so so I have one story that I remember you telling over the years from your time at Whitney that um, uh, that uh, I have retold several times. So I will ask you to retell here. Uh, you know, we we live in the world now of um, you know pretty intense development of junior people. Um, you know, whether it's uh, management consulting firms or investment banks uh, or brand management programs or big banks or tech companies. Um, you know, the, the, I think the balance has shifted in a lot of ways um, between the company and the employee. Um, and we'll talk about that more a little bit later. But uh, one of the stories I always remember was uh, the story of you getting uh, your first raise at yes, J.P. I, I, I knew you were coming to that. Oh, I had been with Whitney for just about a year and had never heard whether I was doing well, badly. I had no feedback. I didn't know if I was in the right direction, the wrong direction. And um, just at the year end, I went to the men's room. And uh, as I was doing my business, I noticed that I was standing next to the managing partner uh, who was also doing his. And he turned to me and he said, oh, uh, Bob, why don't you go speak to George Works? Uh, we're giving you a raise. That was it. That was the extent of your-, of your that, uh, was my, that, was my, that was the feedback I got after my first year of work. That was your professional uh, development. Excellent. Right. And uh, I, I did say to myself, this is something I'm not going to do. <laughs> um, okay. So you find yourself uh, in venture capital, you become a partner, you move out to California and you, you've joined, uh, uh, you know, another former colleague from Whitney. Uh, and um, you had a different experience as uh, a partner in a venture firm than a lot of people do today. Uh, you know, today, a lot of venture firms have investment partners, and then sometimes they have some operating partners that go in and help uh, the uh, portfolio companies um, when they need help. Uh, but you had a job that was a little bit of both. Absolutely. Well, in, in those days, venture firms were much smaller. Today's venture firms never ceases to amaze me when I look one up on the web and I see 
venture firm with, you know, four part, no, with six partners, 82 associates, and, you know, they're just enormous number of people. We were a firm of five people. And so everybody with their investments did everything. We looked at new investments. If we were responsible for making one, we either went on the board or had a responsibility for supervising it. And somehow uh, we were very active investors. And a couple of times where we had an investment in a company and it was clear the CEO was not working out, had to be let go, but we still saw value in the company. Um, we fired the CEO, I got parachuted in as acting CEO. And my job was to hold the rest of the team together, solve the worst of the problems, hire my own replacement and extricate myself. I did that a couple of times and I said, hey, you know what? I rather prefer uh, the role of CEO and running a company to being one step outside and advising and hope my advice got taken, et cetera, et cetera. So I resigned from the firm. I spent the better part of a year looking for a company where I could uh, invest and become an owner or part owner and take on the CEO role as well. Um, after you know, roughly nine months, I was approached by uh, someone I knew who was in contact with two other people. Uh, turned out we were all MIT alumni, but none of, none of us had known the other at school because we were slightly different years. And they had an idea for a business. And uh, we reached an agreement that uh, we would work together. I would write the business plan. Um, this was in the days before slide decks. So everybody, their presentation was the form of a written business plan. And um, none of these, uh, my, my new partners had ever read a business plan. They were technical. Uh, and I had just gotten through a career where I probably read a thousand of them. Um, so our agreement was I would write the business plan with their help because they knew the industry much better than I did. And at the end of writing the business plan, we would decide if we were gonna to continue to work together, I would be the CEO. And if not, they had a free business plan. Um, it worked out. We, we worked together well, we clicked. Um, we went out, we raised financing um, and we named the company Spectre Graphics because we were making advanced graphic terminals uh, in an era where serious computing work was done on large uh, IBM mainframes. We raised capital, we built the product, we built the company, um, and we built it from scratch to doing about $40 million a year, which is in today's dollars, uh, an awful lot more. A very significant computing company in the, in the early 1980s, for sure. Right. And um, the technology shifted very rapidly on us. And it was clear that people were going to throw out their IBM mainframes and switch somewhat to PCs, but in those days, even more to something called an engineering workstation using a Unix-based operating system. Right, so that, that, uh, that was a, you know, a seismic shift in computing. Um, but uh, you know, one, one, of the, one of the things I remember uh, hearing from you along the way was that um, you, uh, at one point, were uh, competing head-to-head -head with IBM Right, you're a tiny, yes. tiny startup. IBM offered uh, performance graphics workstations as well, and it was kind of you and IBM and no one else. And uh, the other competitors had sort of faded away. 
uh, what what was it like waking up every day feeling like I'm competing with what at the time was probably the largest uh, uh, technology company on the planet? Uh, it was a challenge. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we had we had superior products that were compatible with theirs, but better. Um, the biggest problem was we would sell and our customers were large companies. They were the General Motors, the Lockheed's, the TRW's, people who designed and built big things. Um, and of course, dealing with large corporations, you have bureaucracies to deal with. You have organizational silos and all those kinds of things. And we would typically uh, find allies in the engineering department who appreciated our better performing technology and run into uh, roadblocks, uh, probably with the IT department, but sometimes with finance, because no one ever got fired for buying IBM. You, you literally ran into that uh, that adage. Oh, left many, right many times, many times. So um, one of the, so, I'm sorry. You know, I was going to say one one of the um, uh, one of the other uh, there are a couple other things from that era that I wanted to uh, ask about. One was uh, you had uh, the company ready to go public. Yes, we did uh, in October of 1987. Uh, and uh, the stock market crashed. I forget the day. I want to say October 29th was called Black Friday, 1987, if that was the date. Uh, and you had an S1 on file, and you had either done your roadshow or were in the middle of your roadshow, right? We had done the roadshow the week, week and a half before the market crashed. And um, I knew, I had an intuitive feeling that the market was going to be in trouble and that we should get our IPO out before. And um, our underwriters wanted us to have an agreement with a company that maybe people may remember called DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation. They wanted to have us uh, port our technology to their platforms. And they, the underwriters wanted us to have that signed agreement. And all through August, Everybody was on vacation, couldn't get the deal done. And we finally got it done in September and we were ready to go. Uh, and we started, we started putting together the S1 and getting ready for the roadshow. And uh, we were on the roadshow and as the week progressed, I could, the market was getting more and more nervous. And it was clear that there was a race whether we could get the offering out before the market crashed or not. And we didn't. The market crashed, and we were set to go public two business days later. And in, in retrospect, um, was that a good thing or a bad thing? Obviously, it would have been nice to get an IPO off and get the cash in the door and get some liquidity, but presumably your stock would have gone through the floor with everybody else's two days later. Yeah, that's true, but I think it still would have been a good thing because we were profitable. We didn't need additional financing. Um, and uh, we would have weathered the storm. The market did come back, it always does. And uh, we would have been in a better position to also make acquisitions mm. with liquid paper we could use uh, to bolt on other, other uh, right. allied technologies. So it, it was a, a disappointment and it, it, no question it hurt the company. 
Yeah. And then, uh, you know, to continue on, on the journey there, the, the what really hurt the company was the revolution in computing uh, that, uh, you know, moved away from mainframes and terminals and moved towards power in the form of a chip right. on its desk. Um, so you had a decision point in the uh, early 90s, late 80s, and decided to pivot the company uh, into a couple new directions. Um, you want to talk about that for, for a minute? Sure. Um, we knew we had to do something different. And we actually did uh, several things. Um, one, we tried to make an engineering workstation uh, to compete against uh, Hewlett Packard, Apollo, um, uh, Silicon Graphics, etc. Yeah. And we did that, but we made one very fundamental error. The chip, uh, the processing chip that everybody was using was Motorola. And we, our engineers decided that the new chip out from National Semiconductor was much better. So we decided to go with that. We spent a lot of time and money porting our software to a Unix that we had to port to that chip and National Semi then pulled it from the market. And so that just cratered the idea. We, we no longer had the resources to start over again with the Motorola chip. Um, we tried two other things. We sent a team of a marketer and an engineer to interview all our top customers and say, you know what we do. We do high-performance graphics for CAD-CAM, computer-aided design and manufacturing. What problems are you having that we could help with? And uh, we came back with lots of evidence of what we could do. And that was to build software that enabled interoperability of otherwise incompatible software systems. So for example, the Boeing company uh, mm -hmm. were assemblers of airplanes, but they bought many of the large components. They bought their jet engines from Pratt & Whitney or Rolls-Royce. Uh, they bought their tail section from a firm in Australia. Um, the wings were built by someone else. And each of these companies had a different CAD-CAM system and the communication between them was non-existent. So we built software that enabled uh, either real-time whiteboard uh, uh, markups of engineering drawings or interoperability where someone could look at a different system and mark it up with notes, arrows, voice notes, et cetera. And um, they could then have design meetings by telephone between Australia and Seattle while both were looking at the same image on a screen. In the early 1990s, nothing like this existed. But, I mean, five years ago, it only things like this only barely existed, uh, certainly 10 years ago. So uh, you were a bit ahead of the curve there. We were. We were ahead of the curve. And just then, the Internet was coming on board. And the Internet was growing wildly. And everybody else was offering free software on the Internet because they sold advertising or because they had enough capital, they could build a big user base before they figured out how to charge for it. And so we had invested millions of dollars in this software. We needed a revenue stream and we kept running into, that's very nice, but it's on the internet, it should be free. <laughs> and um, 
ultimately, I think if we had had enough capital, we might have weathered the storm and, and lasted long enough to sell enough, but we couldn't sell enough. And, and some, of, some of it was, here's a story for you, it was just ridiculous. Um, we, um, we sold to Ford Motor Company and we were in exhaustive trials with them for free for at least six months. And finally they said, well, we like it. We'll buy one seat. One seat, who do you communicate with with one seat? You need at least two seats. Couldn't convince them to buy even two seats. So, uh, <laughs> so that went by the boards as well. But meanwhile, we had taken our factory, which was manufacturing terminals. And we could see that as the volume slowly dwindled because of the change in technology away from mainframes, uh, our same overhead would be spread over fewer and fewer units and we would price ourselves or cost ourselves out of the market. So uh, we came up with the idea of, hey, there's this new field called contract or outsourced manufacturing. Let's see if we can get in some other people's products to build, spread the overhead and continue to make our our, our terminals profitable as long as there's a market for it. So we did that. And um, the, uh, the company went down from $40 million a year to $10 million a year, but we survived it. We built the uh, OEM um, uh, consignment or, or full turnkey um, building product for other people. Uh, printed circuit boards, full product assemblies, test. Um, and uh, along the way, we acquired a company in a similar business in Indiana, had a factory in Mexico, built the company back to $70 million a year. And then uh, we had a sale. We successfully sold it to a Taiwan-based company, much bigger company in the same industry uh, at the end of 2010. Uh, and then since then, you've been uh, advising uh, mostly first-time technical founders yes, on uh, how to be entrepreneurs and business builders. Correct. Uh, so in the in in the last uh, ten uh, to I guess thirteen years, uh, you have had a really different vantage point, which is uh, advising these companies building uh, very contemporary web-based companies, uh, app-based companies, some in fintech, one in payment tech, one in digital holography. Um, so I'd love to uh, sort of ask you a couple questions as you sort of reflect back on the on the arc of your career. So we're talking about a, a 50 year journey now. Um, what has changed and what has not changed for startups? And let, let's pick, you know, a few specific areas. So let's talk first about financing. Okay. Well, the uh, is a very interesting thing that happened. Uh, when I started in venture capital, uh, as I said, there were only five companies in the country and um, the amounts of capital for startups was much smaller, but people didn't spend the way they spend now. So the dollars went further uh, and it continued that way until about 1978 or 79, when uh, under the Carter administration, uh, the government was moving to take away any advantage for capital gains over ordinary income. And there was a revolt in Congress. And um, 
uh, a uh, congressman from the Midwest, I think Wisconsin, but it might not have been, named Steiger, put in the Steiger Amendment, which protected and uh, in increased the benefits of capital gains. And all of a sudden, venture capital took off. It was like a switch had been thrown and people were able to raise much larger amounts in venture firms and thus deploy much larger amounts. And the whole startup economy changed totally from that year going forward. And you know, I think that was that was certainly also a coincident with um, with with very significant Im increases and improvements in technology and sort of the breadth of the technology sector. So it's it's interesting to think about how those the, the growth of both kind of went hand in hand. Well, I th I think that's true. And um, you know, we we have here in this country uh, a very much more entrepreneurial culture than most of the Western European nations, and um, in those days, certainly the Asian nations, although that's changed. And um, so entrepreneur, entrepreneurs here are business heroes. They're not rebels. Um, and that makes a difference. And people here, if they're an entrepreneur and their venture fails, as long as it wasn't through fraud or, or something that was uh, uh, inappropriate, they can pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and start again. That's That wasn't true in most European countries. If someone had a business that failed for the rest of his life, it was uh, John Smith whose business failed. Um, so the culture here was very different and uh, encouraged entrepreneurial activity. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's so that's kind of a good bridge from financing to the topic of uh, sort of leadership and management. So, uh, you know, how how has that changed or how has that not changed uh, um, over the decades? Fair enough. Um, over in the beginning of my career and working its way forward. Um, Other than getting feedback, uh, you know, in, in the men's room. Right. right. <laughs> um, the um, venture capitalists were not interested in financing a 20-year-old with an idea, quite frankly. They were interested in someone who had cut his teeth in industry, was maybe in his uh, 35 to 50-year-old timeframe. So they had good managerial experience, uh, were, had been with a company where they knew good managers were developed, like in those days, General Electric, um, and had an idea in the industry they already knew where the existing companies were ignoring that new path. So that was basically the model um, uh, in the 70s and into the 80s. And it lasted for a while, but it dwindled. And the idea of the new younger entrepreneur with a revolutionary idea and limited experience, were those people were now able to get financing in part because so much more money had flowed into the venture capital coffers um, from pension funds, uh, endowment funds, um, uh, et cetera. Um, yeah, so that that's uh, that has to have had a pretty profound impact on um, on the culture of startups and on the way um, you know sort of the way employees experience working in a startup. 
Uh, I don't know what you what have you seen along those lines. Well, um, let's see if I can say this. The uh, a lot of people have gotten very rich uh, by being in technology startups that took off. Um, they were able to do so because so much venture capital became available. Um, but the other thing that's happened is there's developed a network of people in the new business industry, both on the finance side and on the operating side. And deep networks have, have evolved so that someone who enters uh, that, um, that ecology can get contacts and is much more fluid in ability to move, start his own company with limited experience. Um, and um, it's it just all become much more fluid than it used to be. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a good summary of what's different. Everything is cheaper, faster, easier, more fluid um, in, in the whole world, not just the, the uh, world right. of startups and technology. All right, so uh, so let's close with one last question. Uh, knowing uh, everything you know uh, uh, across your career today, what are uh, one, two, three pieces of advice you would give to an early or a mid-stage uh, founder, maybe a first-time founder today, um, building their business? Okay. Um, one, the importance of making sure all the people in the company, especially your direct reports, are really aligned. So communication, frequent communication, making sure that everyone shares the vision, or if they don't, find out why, and maybe the vision needs to change, but you need to have everybody working towards the same goals and same purpose. Um, what I used to do, we have a weekly senior staff meeting and we would all say, okay, what did I accomplish last week? What problems have I run into that maybe I could use some help with? And what's my plan for this week to accomplish? And so that way, everybody on the senior management team knew what everybody else on the senior management team was working on. And they could cooperate, help, offer assistance, whatever. Um, we would have at least one all hands meeting a quarter where uh, I and maybe one or two of the other senior officers would explain to all the employees what we were doing and why. And we would occasionally supplement that by asking uh, a senior person from one of our customers to come in and tell everybody how they were using our products, what they were doing with it, and what their products were that would result from it. And that helped get, again, alignment of all the people in the company with what we were doing and why. So one, I'd say uh, communication. Um, two, uh, and I don't think I did this as well as I should have, but man is a political animal and you always get some politics in organizations once you have more than three employees, I think. Um, and you can't avoid it, but you have to manage it and make sure it's absolutely minimized and doesn't get in the way of the performance of the company. And quite frankly, I, don't, I think I let things fester too long sometimes and uh, I could have done a better job at that. Um, 
Three, I think you, you, one has to realize that the chief job of the chief executive of a startup or a rapidly growing company is to understand when they're gonna run out of capital and make early plans to supplement the capital as necessary. Now, depending on the stage of the company, it may be equity, it may be debt, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's critically important that the CEO understands under various scenarios when they're gonna run out of cash and have a plan to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, and that is probably a very good note to end on uh, because that is absolutely critical. Uh, but your other points are great ones too, uh, alignment uh, and communication. Uh, so, uh, Bob Blumberg, just want to thank you for being on the Daily Bolster. Uh, it was great to hear um, about some uh, some things that uh, you know I think I think are good timeless lessons, uh, but with some good color behind them that uh, a lot of people who listen to this uh, will appreciate. So, thank you very much for joining us. Well, you're more than welcome. And uh, needless to say, uh, I I know the CEO of Bolster and the head of this podcast. And uh, I, uh, I think he's doing uh, a generational advance. So thank you for having me.